0: It's easy to say that whenever you do a film, you're inviting the audience to project, but Bowie designed his art in a specific manner that invited participation from the, from the audience. So this film was designed like that so that it's if you describe Bowie, you're kind of describing the experience of the film.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, travel on a cinematic odyssey exploring the creative and musical journey of David Bowie in director Brett Morgan's documentary, Moon Age Daydream. Screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, Moon Age Daydream is the first documentary ever sanctioned by the Bowie estate with access to the artist's archives and features never-before-seen footage and performances spanning Bowie's half-century career. In addition to Moon Age Daydream, Morgan's directorial filmography includes the documentary features Ollie's Army, Chicago 10, and Cobain Montage of Heck, and episodes of the documentary series Say It Loud, a celebration of Black music in America. He and co-director Nanette Burstein were the winners of the 1999 DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentary for their film, On the Ropes. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Morgan spoke with director Andy Timoner about filming Moon Age Daydream. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation.
2: A phenomenal, phenomenal piece of work, my friend. Yeah, another round of applause. Thank you. Yeah, take us. I, I think the best place to start is with your own personal journey. Like take us on on the ride. So you how did how did this come into your into your lap and or did you fight for it? And I think everybody wants to know how this all happened for you and how long the journey was through COVID and all of that.
0: Yeah. Well, it started in uh, 2007. I met with David to discuss collaborating on a hybrid nonfiction project. At the time, he was in retirement, so the project didn't move forward. And uh, I did a movie called Montage of Heck about Kirk Cobain. Thank you. Um, and when it was finishing, I was looking for different avenues to explore music and film and I came up with an idea called the IMAX Music Experience and the idea was that I wanted to take over all the IMAX science museums at night because they are basically some of the best real estate in cinema and they're shut down at they're dark at 6 o'clock. So I had this idea to do like the Beatles at 6, Zeppelin at 7, you know, Jay-Z at 8 and it would be these 40 minute kind of sight and sound experiences non-linear non-narrative each one different from the next and i was going down the road with the beatles on that and bowie passed away and i called his executor who had been in my meeting bill Zisplat, and um said i want to do this um immersive cinematic experience and he said you know most people don't know this but david saved everything and um And for the past 23 years, he's been working with an archivist, but he didn't know what to do with all this stuff. And the one thing he said is he didn't want to participate in a kind of traditional documentary. So Bill said, you know, I think this may be perfect. Come back to me in a few months, it's a little too soon. And so that thus began the journey. I did a year of academic research into Bowie, and um, we were getting all the materials from the estate. The deal I made with the estate was they would give me access to everything and provide me with final cut. And that was that. There was no screening process for them. They never asked for any changes or to really look at things until we were done. I know it's so strange in this day and age uh, you know, of brand management that they, in fact, the one time I did ask them a question, which was really just a, Because they knew David so well, I want. I was curious. They would just deflect everything, be like that. You know that you're on your own, and probably. And I'm actually really glad to be able to say this in this room because this was a big secret. Because I'm a director, this is how this came into existence. January 2017, I was um, doing my research on this, and I was in pre-pro for a pilot for Marvel, and I uh, left the production office. At uh, seven o'clock, I went to the Fairfoot, to the Silent Film Theater to moderate a a screening of Tower. And I had um, a heart attack and uh, flatlined, um, fortunately, in the ER. I was in a coma for a week. And when I woke, the first thing out of my mouth to the surgeon was, (laughs) Uh, I, my wife had said it was a Saturday and I was like, I need to be on set on Monday. And, and he was like, you're not going anywhere. I was like, no, you don't understand. It's a very important pilot. And sure enough, two days later, I pulled the plugs out and, um, went to ABC for auditions. And so the heart attack did nothing to alter how out of control I was. And still, uh, no, I'm a little calmer now. Okay. And the reason I said I was happy to bring it up into this space was, for years, I didn't. I had to keep it a secret because I didn't think I'd get hired. And I know so many directors who've suffered from heart disease. And I, I hate to get serious for a moment, but I feel that it's something that needs to be talked about and addressed because we have such a stressful vocation. And yet we can't announce it. I had a $250,000 premium from the insurance company because of my previous condition. So when it was coming time to promote Moon Age Daydream, which I didn't want to discuss, I didn't want to promote, I didn't want to do any press on it because I didn't want, I wanted people to just experience the mystery of it. But Neon, our distributor, said, you know, someone's got to push the film, and so as we we're going to Cannes, I said, okay, well, I'm going to talk about the heart attack. And they said, no, we don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> and I was like, well, I can't talk about this film without talking about the heart attack. Because what happened was I four months after the heart attack, I sit down to start reviewing all this material. And suddenly David was felt like he was providing me with like a, a kind of roadmap to recovery of how to lead a more balanced and fulfilling life. So the film became in many ways about me learning how to um, find, I don't want to say a sense of purpose, but more balance and equilibrium in my life.
2: That's beautiful. Yeah. that Yeah. That's, that's my next question, which is, you know, the film is almost a guide
1: yeah.
2: for artists on how to maintain an edge. For most of the film, Bowie is is, is trying to, is, is like using his body as an, as a beaker. Um, He's experimenting and, and you, you've handpicked all of this stuff, right? Through how many hours? Thousands, thousands and thousands of hours. How did you go about editing that arc? Because he goes from this sort of study, he self studies, it seems like in isolation, but as an artist, he is attempting to, you know, you establish that he's, he's he's noting every year he's capturing every year with his work but he's also putting himself in dangerous and uncomfortable yeah. situations you know how much yeah how how did you how did you begin to break down the chaos and fragmentation that defines him in the edit.
0: So the through line became very crystal clear during the screening process, which was, as David states, um, chaos and fragmentation. Or he, on other occasions, would say, uh, People think my through line is cha 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 changes, but really it should be cha 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 transience. And um, when I locked in on transience as a through line, I realized that several of the themes that David was most noted for or wrote about the most, whether it be spirituality or gender fluidity or being in transit um, or the cut-up process, all of these things were kind of tied to this sort of idea. And so I broke down transients into subcategories and figured out where they would best be explored in the narrative. So gender fluidity and spirituality were placed with Ziggy. And then when he moves to L.A., it was about environment and the cut-up process. And then when he went to Berlin, it was creating a new language. Um, so I was able to track it that way. And then I thought a lot about... Um, I was reading a lot of Joseph Campbell, and I put David into kind of the hero's myth. And so the narrative sort of ended up being you know, an artist who feels they have to throw themselves into the fire in order to create until he finds love and is able to figure out how to create without putting himself in harm's way, so to speak. So when he meets Amon, for me, the story that I was sort of pushing through sort of concluded and from that station for the rest of his life, he just created beautiful music, but from The comfort of a house. So there was something very, there was a very simplistic kind of love story, like the thing that you're looking for that you don't, you know, I don't want, I don't need a home. I don't want a home, Uh, but you sort of do. And um, so there was, it was a very simple on that, on that thing, threading it and layering it and trying to create a narrative that didn't feel like a narrative or, what's part of the idea that the film was designed to mimic or mirror the Bowie experience. So it was supposed to feel enigmatic and mysterious and invite the audience to project in a very conscious way. It's easy to say that whenever you do a film, you're inviting the audience to project. But Bowie designed his art in a specific manner that invited participation from the the audience, almost in a Brechtian manner. And so, um, so this film was designed like that, so that it's if you describe Bowie, you're kind of describing the experience of the film. And- you
2: wanted it to speak in the language in his language,
0: yeah, yeah. So
2: what? So archival, tons of archival. Tell tell me about some of the tropes in the film that started to emerge for you, escalators and well, that some was of the images that you just you 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 came towards and what they stood for,
0: for you. Well, so all of the art and film clips that you've seen in the film were referenced by Bowie at some point in his life as a source of inspiration. And that was something that was really important for me because when I was introduced to Bowie, he was like a cultural passport to all this other art. And when you listen to Bowie's songs, they're filled with Easter egg references. And if you get them, that's great. And if you don't, you get the color of them, right? So I decided that that would be part of my vocabulary. And it was also, I wanted the film, this is going to sound a little weird. I wanted the film to sort of be a transmission beamed from earth to a different galaxy of, of, of life on earth and during David's lifetime. So it was like all this culture that was put into this blender and then sort of pushed out there. And so it became very freeform in terms of, and I was employing David's methodologies and techniques for creating. I wasn't doing the cut-up because I wasn't working on a flatbed, but I was employing Ziga Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera, sort of pure Eisensteinian montage and um, and trying how sorry a plus b that. equals c taking two shots that have totally disparate ideas or contexts rubbing them next to each other and creating some new meaning out of the third of which that third meaning is all, all is open to interpretation. Uh, it was and you know it's a, it was it was learning how to embrace mistakes, learning that you know I would throw something on and go like hey you know what I that you know. That that works just fine. It's like going shopping for clothes and putting on the first suit and being like, "Yeah, that works. I'm good." Um, but that wasn't easy because I like I think a lot of directors fancied myself on being a perfectionist, you know. And everything I've ever done up to this point was about that. And then David
2: perfectly imperfect.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There are no, there's no mistakes, just happy accidents. And so that's real. And those oblique strategies became a very real way to get out of the comfort zone to, uh, so, so understanding that language with the reference points was really critical to the fabric as was this understanding that it was all performative that it was not a film about David Jones, it was a film about Bowie in quotations. And as such, all images of David that are in the film are performed, which again does not make them less honest or truthful or authentic, but what it does is it takes a shot from Man Who Fell to Earth and I employed it as a document of David Bowie in that moment of time as opposed to David Bowie playing the role of Thomas Newton in The Man of Elder Earth. And so that became part of the visual vocabulary of the film as well. So all of those elements all were, and again, in a pure Bowie way, it's not putting a, a chiron on the film clip. And if you get the reference, that's great. And if you don't get the reference, that's great. And if you understand that they're all part of David's vocabulary, that's great. And if you don't, that's great. It's, it's like designing you know the surface and the subtext you know you build the subtext assuming no one's going to pick up on it and so if nothing else they're just you know have this sublime kaleidoscopic experience
2: but overall we we glean that this is a man who is feels emotionally void feels that he is you've you've managed to put in some very important information about his brother and about what he's hiding from and what he's running from and his identity you know, there's there's that built in where he feels that he's covering and all of these versions of Bowie that we're seeing are, yeah, man fell to earth, and Ziggy Stardust and and this facade and this facade because we're supposed to not realize that he has no emotions when actually, and then this massive arc and all of a sudden this person who has declared for three quarters of the film that he has no emotional st- anything, core, suddenly is all emotion and love for the world and love for Iman, you know, it's a huge transformation. And I'm just wondering, like, was that a discovery for you? It must have been at some point where you realized, oh my God, what a profound journey this person has been on. And
0: Well, I, I viewed it a little differently. The I think that he had an appreciation for life That few of us, but from a very early age, it wasn't evolved. It didn't evolve. There was um, a song in the movie that crescendos the first, a very long first half, um, called Signet Committee. And um, in Signet Committee, he sings out, I want to live, I want to live, I want to live. And the first day I was working on the film, Tony Visconti, David's producer, brought me to a studio to play me Stems. And he's like, I want to play you this song. And he muted all the instrumentation and David was sobbing uncontrollably as he was singing, I want to live, I want to live, I want to live. And there were two things that really came to me from that. One was that his commitment to his role, if you will. Um, But more importantly, here's a man who's at the very beginning of his life, at the very beginning of his journey, who's singing like someone on their last day on earth with an appreciation for the brevity of life. And so that became really important in understanding the character that I was depicting, that that was not something, as he says in the film, which is I believe is somewhat contradictory, um, when he says uh, the moment you've lived more days than you have in front of you is the moment you can really start to appreciate life. That's actually not true. I mean, that was true for me when I heard that from David. And I was like, oh, (laughs) shit. That's an interesting way of putting it. Um, but he had he understood from the beginning how precious it was. And so he set about, as he said, trying to have the most adventurous life of anyone he'd ever known. And I think he kind of did it. and well, he definitely did. He did. and, and yeah. he, Andy, it's so um, what, what I've come to appreciate more now that it's done, and I'm sort of have to talk about it. Is this idea that if we think of the cultural landscape over our lifetimes and last, um, (laughs) I'm not going to drag you (laughs) into it. Yeah, here we go. (laughs) I'm older than Andy. So, okay, thank you for finally admitting that. Yes, Jesus. uh, But you know, when you think about most people, you know, and this isn't a put down or criticism or anything, that we cling to our success. Nobody wants to risk their fame and their celebrity. And their fortune and their fan base to scratch a creative itch. But David did that time and time again. And it's not that that's he didn't care. That's the best
2: thing. That's yeah. the best that's the whole
0: moral well, of the story. I mean, he didn't he That's did- why he's
2: on the wall at my house. Like, walk in the <laughs> yeah. front door because he stands for that. He stands for transformation no matter what. Like it doesn't matter. If you've said it so many times, then drop it yeah. and move on. Yeah. And you, you put that in. It's like all over the movie and it's a manifesto I think for generations to come, honestly. You deserve a round of applause for that, honestly. If we can do that, yeah. Truly. No, really. It's- well,
0: it makes you think if you're 50, I'm 53, how many films do I have left? Do I want to make this film again? And what would be in it for me if I did? And of course there's economics to this and there's uh, we can't all afford to take those leaps that David did, but is that afford financially or afford spiritually you know because spiritually we need to make those leaps of faith um and uh, you know but it's 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 frightening and so uh, he w- i felt like he was really what he was saying felt so apropos for this experience of being by myself, editing, producing, and directing, not having a staff. And I talked to you over COVID
2: and you were like under the avid with was, wires. Just, you were was, like rewiring things. Yeah, I was, mean, was, you was, and I were both editing by ourselves with no staff.
0: I, ha- I have to just quickly point out that Andy, who has probably directed the greatest rock doc of all time, Dig, um, <laughs> has an amazing new movie... Uh, coming out. When is it coming out, Andy?
2: Oh my gosh! Here we go. Um, October fourteenth in LA.
0: Last ride home. It's uh, if you see it, uh, bring a ton of Kleenex, and you'll have the most cathartic experience that thank you'll you. probably have in a cinema this year. So I, I just wanted to oh, make sure that you. we we put that out there. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Um. That's that's a first that I've been moderating a QA and somebody says that. Back to you. He says, I'm a hodgepodge. And it's really early on. And also you start with the bisexuality. I know you're starting with Ziggy Stardust a little bit, but it's also you lead with that. And you lead with that incredible shoe scene where there are a pair of shoes. And it's you just it struck me. It's like 1972.
0: Tell me about. I feel really uncomfortable starting with that. Like it was not something. Well, I, I didn't even want to mention it because it felt so cliched, like such a you know Bowie 101. But of course, it was it it was specific to that period and that character of Ziggy, so it needed to exist there. And it obviously was so important to convey for several reasons. I mean, you really get a sense of his courage, you know, to do what he did and how he did it at that time. Obviously, was you know took. To, yeah, and and you it's know, it's 50 hard. Years ago. I see that most of us are. Uh, you know, have grew up before the internet and it's hard to convey. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's not true. Raise your hands if you grew up.
0: <laughs> You're it's, it's, assuming
2: that they're like us.
0: <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to convey to people who grew up since the internet, how critical it was to have someone like Bowie as a flag bearer when we were entering puberty and, and, there was nobody that was waving that flag. And so now, now obviously, there's a lot of other reference points. But back then, I mean, he was, it was like a lifesaver, you know? I mean, it was, um, so, yeah. I don't,
2: and when the internet came, he started giving internet email addresses to everyone. So I was on to at
0: davidbowie.com. That's so rad.
2: Literally, that was my email. I was so happy about it. It was great. <laughs> he was on the front edge of everything. He
0: was. Always. Well, you know what, you know what it's, uh, he writes about how he was writing the 20th, 21st century in 1971. Uh, the first, Bono saw the film and wrote to me the next day and said, I feel like there's a lot of stuff stylistically that's similar to the Zoo TV tour that we did. And I said, I wrote him back and I said, you know, when Zoo TV came out, I think it was 91, if it was being billed as incredibly futuristic and um, a lot of chaos and fragmentation in the days before the internet. And I, was, I said to him something I think is so true of David. I said, you know, I think at that time, like David you weren't predicting the future you were just sensitive to transmissions and frequencies that had already arrived but the rest of us couldn't see and pick up on yet and so david says at some point in the film that he views himself almost like a cultural anthropologist time stamping each day not tomorrow not yesterday but that moment and i i do think that's very true that as artists we are probably better at writing history unconsciously than historians who are doing a fact-based history. And I think Low Bowie's album that he did in '76 is as good of a, the story of civilization in that moment of time as anything you're going to find. Um, so I think that that you know Bowie had a gift. It wasn't he wasn't a futurist. He he can pick up on that chaos and fragmentation. And and I think of him as like a bamboo that most of us go through life and are rigid to change and hustle to change. And so you snap. And Bowie just kind of knew how to f- surf the chaos. And having watched every frame and existence of him, this was the most balanced person. I, I mean, you just, like, there was not a moment where the veil came down or that anything. Is,
2: that is a key. That's the key to being an artist. I mean, the key to being an artist is surfing the change or to being a human and being happy in this world is accepting change and embracing uh, yeah. change. Cause it's, it's constant. But, um, for you, uh, you know, your experience, I mean, we're talking about how much, how much footage?
0: Uh, it took two years to screen through all the footage. It's been a seven year journey since, um, it was conceived. We ran out of money on year three. Um, and that's why I had to edit uh, myself <laughs> uh, and it, it Which did you did a
2: great job.
0: Well, it helps that I'm not... Yes, thinking.
2: you did. You did a fantastic job. Ah. And then you tapped Tony Visconti, his original. like tell well, us no, about to the Paul
0: music. Paul Massey right? is the mixer. Paul, Paul. if anyone's had the pleasure to work with Paul, it's like working with Vittorio Storaro. Or, I mean, he is an absolute master wizard. And it was a really interesting challenge for him as well as me because when you're mixing film, the orientation is always to the front, you know, and so you you add supplementary supports to the surrounds and to the utmost, but, you know, the, you're mixing a board and you're facing up here for a reason. And I kept saying to Paul, the whole purpose of this uh, production was to bring the music into, not just the music, but the design elements into the room so that you were constantly swirling around you you know, it's like the THX logo. You go to a movie and the THX logo comes on. You're like, oh, this is going to be rad. And then it all goes away. And then the rest <laughs> of the movie, it's like there's dialogue in the center track. And you're like, why, why did you bait me with that thing? We
2: just have that continuing, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and I, that, I kept saying to him, I want the whole movie to be yeah. the THX logo. And and so it was a big tug of war with, And and I will say that if left to my own, this film outside of a room like this would have been a total disaster because Paul kept coming back and going, This may work here at the Fox stage, but soon as you get out of here, it's going to fall apart. So we found this nice balance. We did um, discrete mixes for 12.0 IMAX, 5.0 IMAX. We did Adobe Atmos. Paul kept thinking we were going to do these fold downs, and they never worked. Um, so, we, <laughs> so we ended up. Not remixing from scratch, but the from the Dolby Atmos to the Seven One was four or five days of solid mixing to get it set up for it. So it was it was really kind of adventurous, I think, for all of us. And I, there weren't a lot of department heads on this film, but the three of us that there were, I think we all is Stefan Adelman who did the animation.
2: You have a habit of running back and forth and dancing, right? Like so, probably they knew that it was good when you would just dance to it. I don't know
0: what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> this place, though, I bet
2: you all heard that mix, right? You heard it tonight because I wasn't in the room, but I this theater is amazing. The new sound system is amazing in here. So it
0: is. We were. I was yeah. trying to figure out if it was going to be too loud in here tonight. I heard but- you turned it up. No, we turned it down a little at bit. Actually, at the tech check. <laughs> no, no, no. We turned it down to six seven, I think we had it, or six six. Uh, it's a tough one. You know, I coming back from a lot of film festivals and um and I would often look out at, at the audience and see a lot of patrons and try to decide if I was gonna play it for them or play it for my own ears and was like, No, I gotta play it loud. It's it's it, no, you don't immersive. hear the sub if you go beneath six four or something so did,
2: how was it how did it merge differently then I mean um I, I do want to say though before we leave well, I want to ask this question but before we leave music what songs why the songs you particularly chose were they to themes that emerged yeah. or were they to your childhood no. favorites or yeah and then yeah it's tell
0: me so something. funny now that the film's out in the world and I get these questions on social media as if the Song list is just my personal like favorite Bowie songs. Like I'm like, well, there's some,
2: there's some, you know, there's some obscure ones. They were the way this
0: playlist was created was once I established the themes of the film, I decided to play a game, and the game was pick three songs from each album that relate back to the themes of Transients, and that way I was not picking necessarily my favorite songs or songs from one period, but I was spreading it out. I took that list sort of mashed it up and curated it into the jukebox musical and used that as the foundation. Now, that's all subtext. So the song, Width of a Circle or Free Cloud, you know, my reason for choosing them is not overt. But like all art, you know, I think, and this is to me the value of subtext is if I know why they're there, it will, if you can't pick it up, at least it should feel cohesive. That there's it. It doesn't feel like a random act, whether you're cognizant of why or not. So there was del- very deliberate for I think nearly every track, and there might have been one that I slipped in that kind of okay, that doesn't really <laughs> relate back. But um, but they were all very specific to ideas of spirituality or these various other motifs.
2: And and for you. How do you emerge differently? How is this? This is, in a way, a dream for you. I think. Um, yeah. Tell us about what this means to you. at This point.
0: Well, there's several layers to that. One, um, I wouldn't recommend this at home. I, I, I think it was making a film without a producer was uh, in and out without an editor was not a good idea. I I was one of those directors who was like, I don't need any, I don't need (laughs) you guys taking credit for all my work. Just fuck off. I fired two producers at the beginning of the film because they were trying, they wanted to go like...
2: Wait, I just met a producer of yours on this film. Did you fire...
0: No, no, there were two that are nameless who wanted to share the same... They were like, let's split the fee three ways. And I was like, wait, what? You guys (laughs) are like not going to be doing anything. And... I was like, no, goodbye, we're good. And um, <laughs> that was problematic. Um, Ultimately. Uh, but, I, but, but, but there was something kind of, my wife, the other Monday morning, the film had a great opening this week. And um, Monday morning, she said to me, when I say great opening, both from the- 40, it opened
2: 40 countries. We
0: opened in 40 countries day and date in IMAX and um, had the highest opening for any- uh, Art House, independent specialty film since uh, Wes Anderson's last film. And thank you. By uh, by this Friday, we will be the highest-grossing nonfiction film released since the pandemic started, and I think since Free Solo. Um, and so we were watching the audience response from all over the world, and it was mind-blowing that people were accepting it it's not a musical biography, and they took it as an experience. And Deborah and I were so moved by the response. And she she said to me Monday morning, she was, this is my wife, Deborah, my executive producer, also a brilliant director. Um,
2: hasn't been fired.
0: <laughs> yeah, hasn't been fired. And she said to me, she teared up Monday morning, and she said, You know, I feel like you were dropped in this pit seven years ago. And she was at the top going, you can do it. <laughs> you can do it. And watch me try to crawl my way out of this hole, which it really felt Im- like we weren't going to get out. And so to come out of it and see that people are embracing the film is so rewarding to be able to bring nonfiction to IMAX theaters across the globe,
2: and not just nonfiction. I mean, you brought a film about, and you bought you brought a biopic, but that's not a biopic. It's an avant-garde. It's an art piece. You know, it's it's non-linear, oh, but it's, it's a hallucination. Uh, it's psychedelic. It is nonfiction. Uh, it's, the, but it's you know what I'm saying. Like it's also challenging people beyond that.
0: Th- this is true, beyond but just their
2: ideas of narrative.
0: But and, just the idea of bringing documentaries. And having them, you know, we have a we're at the Chinese all week, and I was there earlier tonight. There was a woman who was there for a seventh screening, and I don't think she ever saw a documentary in a movie theater before. And that's really exciting to be able to participate in that sort of experience. So I think we have to wrap it up. But I will say in conclusion, um, we are expanding to uh, 570 screens in the U.S. on Friday. Oh, no, 760 screens in the U.S., 520 in the U.K. Um, I'm like, what the hell are you guys doing? We're like on 40 screens in L.A. alone. Um, So not to be a Willy Loman, but if you like the film, please tell your friends. (laughs) Uh, we could use all the help and support that we can get. And I just have to say, I haven't been... Um, uh, these type of movies, and I have to say this because we're in the director's guild. Yes, we are. These Most of my career, I go around with the archival films and I get this question all the time. So what did you do? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you didn't shoot anything, so what did you do? <laughs> and there's this... Tremendous fallacy that archival filmmaking is somehow easier than verté, and I I just want to say that it's it's I've done verté, and when you're shooting verté, if you need a shot, you go shoot the shot. This twenty six days looking for one shot that I couldn't find, you know, and you know, sound designing and color grading. We did 650 hours of color grading and um, Paul and I mixed in sound design for 16 months and every session was supervised. There was not, company three kept trying to do unsupervised color. And I'm like, we're writing the film now. What do you, we you can't be unsupervised. We're painting. And so I I think that you know, if I just edited and walked away from it, but these, the, the films to me are just, the, the, when the form is the content, they, they, they don't come into existence until you're finished the mix. That's the first time I actually be like, oh, that's what it is. And the, as we're cutting, as I'm cutting it, the, and the pacing, I'm in the back of my mind knowing what I'm intending to do with color and how that's going to impact the energy of the film. And so, there's. I I just find that there's so much more work that is required in this sort of feeling where you're trying to create in these sort of experiences, and um, and it is directing. It's It's, very intense. it's, 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 It's very. I mean, I've done scripted, and I've done this, and this is far more. Hands on to me as a director than anything else. I've as a done.
2: director editor, one director editor to another. Yeah. Last question. Yeah. I just made a Verite film that you yeah. shouted out. So, yes, which is amazing. I just also made an archival film yeah. and I totally appreciate yeah, what you just said. True. Incredible work.
0: Yeah. Really Thanks incredible work.
2: Me. Yeah. Um, but do you feel that your job in a way is finding what the film wants to be, like the film is bigger than you and you, it's coming through you at a certain point Mm. in the process as an editor, as a director, editor, do you ever get to that point when you're editing where it's like, it's coming through you and it's what it wants to be. And it's up to you to find it.
0: No, I I don't, I I find it before I get to the edit room. I may have difficulty finding shots to shot, but I know in nonfiction, there's a lot of conversation about finding it in the edit and Can I have become know? so self-conscious hmm. that all biography is a form of autobiography. And so if you do a Bowie film and I do a Bowie film, they're not going to be the same. And it's not a just aesthetics. I actually
2: made the same film <laughs>
0: over back- <No>, my <laughs> And so your life experience is obviously going to be imparted whether you're conscious of it or not. And so at some point in my career, I became hyper aware of that. And it's enabled me to work out a lot of issues through other people's lives. Um, you know, Kirk Montage of Heck. Uh, yeah, I I, I was a story about my mom. I thought, and um, and my childhood in Studio City and being a latchkey kid and and suffering from you know I'd, uh, I had tremendous issues related to shame because I had an awful speech impediment till I was sixteen, and so these things become very personal. And to say that, let's say in a public forum, I feel safe being with directors. If I go in a public forum and I say that the Bowie film is an autobiography, people say, "Why are you making it about you?" And it's like, "Well, I'm sorry, I can't be someone else." So, so being aware of it allows you to, to for me at least, to tap into truths that resonate and and if they're resonating with me i assume they're going to resonate elsewhere so to your question i don't feel the weight or the gravitas because they all feel so personal and the faith is that if it's that personal hopefully it will speak to others if you're being honest with yourself
2: you told me that your kid you felt you were talking to your children in some way can you just talk about that for one second
0: I I have to run, Amy's telling me, but I will just say this, that when we were at the premiere at Cannes and we were in a room with 2,300 other people and I was seeing the film for the first time with an audience, I had the craziest sensation that David, I couldn't remember editing, I couldn't remember assembling it and it was David was talking to me, everyone else in the room went dark and it was like he was my life coach. And it was like I was hearing it for the first time. And it was a really powerful experience. And I guess I hope that somehow that's transferred to you as an audience member and that everyone has that experience with the film. Because at that point, I'm just a spectator. Um, I'd like to thank you, Andy, and the DJ so much for hosting us tonight. Thank you, Andy. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.